Greetings, friends, whether you're joining us for the first time or for the 76th time or for any number of times in between. My name is Jeremy Walker, and this is a podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. What we do is simply work through the sermons of the eminent Victorian pastor-preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Week by week, we read a sermon every day for those who can, or each week, a featured sermon for those who'd like to engage, but at a slightly slower pace. And that featured sermon is the topic of this podcast, where we try and select a representative sample of the sermons of Spurgeon so that we can see what it was that uh, God did with this man, how he used him for the glory and the honour of his name. Now, you can follow us on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon, or you can find us at mediagratii.org podcasts, where you can sign up for a weekly newsletter. This week, our featured sermon is 507, The Power of Prayer and the Pleasure of Praise. The sermon text is 2 Corinthians 1, 11 and 12, and it was delivered on the 3rd of May, 1863 at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. The text reads as follows. Ye also helping together by prayer for us, that for the gift bestowed upon us by the means of many persons, thanks may be given by many on our behalf. For our rejoicing in this, the testimony of our conscience, that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation in the world and more abundantly to you would. That's using the authorised version as it is in Spurgeon's original. We'll look at more what that text means as we work our way through. Spurgeon is going to preach in this sermon fundamentally about gratitude. Paul, he says, is a master at all arithmetic. His faith was always a ready reckoner, and we here find him computing by the believer's rule of three. He argues from the past to the present and from the present to things yet to come. And he calls his people who hear him to courage then, you afflicted seed of Israel. If you had a changeable God to deal with, your souls might be full of bitterness. But because God is the same yesterday, today and forever, every repeated manifestation of his grace should make it more easy for you to rest upon him. Every renewed experience of his fidelity, that is his faithfulness, should confirm your confidence in his grace. And so this comes down then to gratitude to God. But, says Spurgeon, not denying or undervaluing the second causes. By this he means that God is the first great cause. He is the original of all things, but that God is pleased to use means to accomplish his own ends. So having first praised the God of all comfort, says Spurgeon, Paul now remembers with gratitude the earnest prayers of the many loving intercessors, and so gratitude to God must never become an excuse for ingratitude to man. And so we begin to see where Spurgeon gets his title from, the power of prayer and the pleasure of praise. So while he's speaking on these topics, he wants to first acknowledge the power of united prayer, secondly, to excite his hearers to united praise, and then in the third place, to urge our joyful claim upon you, a claim which is not ours alone, but belongs to all ministers of God who in sincerity labour for souls. And one of the striking things about this is that Spurgeon is unembarrassed about speaking 
as a minister of the gospel to those who are under his ministry. And he speaks for himself as well as for others. There's no artificial shyness here. Spurgeon understands his own particular place and role. Now, to be to be frank, he's uh, very much a Victorian in his sense of himself and the, the work that he does. But nevertheless, there's a, a truly scriptural sense of his proper authority that at least underpins some of that. And it'll be interesting to see how that comes out as we come to that third point. But so he says, first, my dear friends, my duty and privilege this morning are to acknowledge the power of united prayer. This sermon is uh, structured at that three-point level, as so many of Spurgeon's sermons are. Uh, But underneath those three points, uh, there's various sparks flying, if you like, in various directions. So with regard to the power of united prayer, he wants us to understand that God has made prayer the abounding and rejoicing river through which most of our choice mercies flow to us. It is the golden key which unlocks the well-stored granaries of our heavenly Joseph. God has appointed prayer as a means of obtaining blessing. Why? Because prayer glorifies God. Though it is not the highest mode of adoration, or otherwise it would be continued by the saints in heaven, he says, yet it is the most humble and so the most fitting to set forth the glory of the perfect one as it is beheld by imperfect flesh and blood. From the Our Father, in which we claim relationship, right on to the kingdom and the power and the glory, which we ascribe to the only true God, every sentence of prayer honours the Most High. And as prayer glorifies God, so the act of prayer teaches us our unworthiness, our sense of dependence upon God. It is a confession of human emptiness. I believe, says the preacher, that the most healthy state of a Christian is to be always empty and always depending upon the Lord for supplies, to be always poor in self and rich in Jesus, weak as water personally, but mighty through God to do great exploits, and hence the use of prayer, because while it adores God, it lays the creature where he should be in the very dust. Prayer is in itself, he says, apart from the answer which it brings, a great benefit to the Christian. As the runner gains strength for the race by daily exercise, so for the great race of life we acquire energy by the hallowed labour of prayer. What then, he says, if I ask whether prayer clothes the believer with the attributes of deity, girds human weakness with divine strength, turns human folly into heavenly wisdom, and gives to troubled mortals the serenity of the immortal God? I know not what prayer cannot do. I thank thee, great God, for the mercy seat, a choice gift of thy marvellous loving kindness. Help us to use it aright. Interesting that in this sermon on prayer, Spurgeon does what he occasionally does and turns his preaching into praying as he goes. These ejaculations toward heaven, these cryings out in the midst of his sermon, these arrow prayers that rise up to God, even in the very act of preaching. But there's a second reason to acknowledge the power of united prayer. Not only is it the channel down which God has appointed that most of our choice mercies should flow, but there are many choice and special favours which can only be brought to us by the fleets of united prayer. 
Spurgeon is uh, trying to emphasize now that the, the particular blessings that we seek are brought only by prayer. They come by no other means. And so uh, when we pray, we are engaging on on behalf of the whole church for blessings which God will give only in answer to prayer. Is it not, he says, a happy thought, dear friends, that the very poorest and most obscure church member can add something to the body's strength? We cannot all preach, we cannot all rule, we cannot all give gold and silver, but we can all contribute our prayers. There is no convert, though he be but two or three days old in grace, but can pray. There is no bedridden sister in Jesus who cannot pray. There is no sick, aged, imbecile, obscure, illiterate or penniless believer who cannot add his supplications to the general stock. This is the church's riches. I may have said it before in these podcasts, but I sometimes encourage men and women in the congregation who say either I can't do anything or perhaps oh, I can just pray or I can only pray. No, you never just pray. You never only pray. You speak on behalf of Christ's people to the head of the church in order to obtain blessings. How we ought to feel this bond of union, says Spurgeon. How we ought to pray for one another. How, as often as the church meets together for supplication, should we all make it our bounden duty to be there? I would that some of you who are absent from the prayer meeting upon any little excuse would reflect how much you rob us all. The prayer meeting is an invaluable institution, ministering strength to all other meetings and agencies. Are there not many of you who might by a little pinching of your time and pressing of your labours come among us a little oftener? That's a question that needs to be asked at least as much, if not more, in our day than it was in Spurgeon. Do we understand that meetings for prayer are the very place in which, by God's grace, we obtain the energies that are required for all the other work of the congregation. We cannot do anything until we have prayed. And if we really believe that, then should we not be making every effort, arranging our time, not just around the the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, Spurgeon would, would never put that to one side, But are we seizing opportunities to pray? Are we making prayer a priority as a church? It's not just the the Lord's Day evening services that have fallen by the by in a lot of congregations. It's the meetings for prayer as well. And now a further observation built upon this, that united prayer should specially be made for the ministers of God. Paul asks for it here in his text, Brothers, pray for us. Paul asks for it. Brethren, pray for us, and all God's ministers to the latest time will ever confess that this is the secret source of their strength. The prayers of the people must be the might of the ministers. Now, why should this be so? Again, Spurgeon throws out a few particular answers. Because his position is the most perilous. Satan wants to to take out the ministers of God, because he knows that if he can smite them, there'll be a general confusion. It's like the the snipers who pick off the the men with the uh, officers' badges on their uniforms. We beseech you, if you elect us to the office of the ministry, stand fast at our side in our hourly conflicts. 
then there's a solemn weight of responsibility that rests upon the man. There will come times with every preacher of the gospel, if he be what he should be, when he will be in dread suspense for his hearers and will not be able to discharge his duty by proxy, but must personally labour for men, not even trusting himself to preach, but calling upon his God for help, since he is now overwhelmed with the burden of men's souls. The man stands between heaven and hell on God's behalf. He says then, pray for us. If God gives us to you and if you accept the gift most cheerfully, do not so despise both God and us as to leave us penniless and poverty-stricken because your prayers are withheld. Then the preservation of the minister is one of the most important objects to the church. It's the the, the pilot falling over the the edge or the, the captain struck down with sickness or the helmsman washed from the wheel. There's a particular duty and a particular responsibility that attaches to the minister. Now, you might be thinking, and I imagine many could in our egalitarian age, aren't we building up this one man too much? Aren't we putting him on a pedestal? Isn't he in danger of getting a big head? Well, perhaps the opposite might be asked. Haven't we perhaps lost sight of the significance of this work in the church of Jesus Christ? And whether or not you think Spurgeon is over-elevating the importance of the minister and his ministry, could it not be that there's at least an equal danger of us degrading and dismissing that particular work? Spurgeon asks, how much more is asked of him than of you? You're to keep your private table for individual instruction, but he, a public table, a feast of good things for all comers. How is he going to do what he's called to do without the prayers of the saints? How will he shine, not just as a candle in the house, but a lighthouse to be seen across the deep? If he is uh, righteous, then his righteousness will have a far impact. If he is evil, if he is the deadly upas tree with spreading boughs poisoning all beneath his shadow, then he's going to do a great deal of damage. He needs prayer. And then he says, and again he's back in his text now, uh, the word, the idea of helping together, working together by prayer for us. This is a labour, he says. It is not something that happens easily. It is earnest work. Some people's prayers have no work in them, but the only prayer which prevails with God is a real working man's prayer. And so, he says, we don't want finger-end prayers which only touch the burden. We need shoulder prayers which bear a load of earnestness and are not to be denied their desire. We don't want those dainty runaway knocks at the door of mercy which professors give when they show off at a prayer meeting. We ask for the knocking of a man who means to have and means to stop at mercy's gate till it opens and all his need shall be supplied. The energetic, vehement violence of the man who's not to be denied but intends to carry heaven by storm until he wins his heart's desire. This is the prayer which ministers covet of their people. He emphasises that he said a hundred times that all the blessing that God has given to the tabernacle, all the increase to our church before they were even in that building, has been due under God to your earnest, fervent supplications. Perhaps we need to ask, is one of the reasons why we have not obtained what we've longed for is we have not prayed in accordance with our longing? So shall the day come in which the daughters of Philistia shall rejoice and the sons of Syria shall triumph? 
If not, to your knees again with all the force of prayer. If not, to your vehement supplications once more. If not, if you would not see good blighted and evil triumphant, clasp hands again and in the name of him who ever lives to intercede, once more be prevalent in prayer that the blessing may again descend, you also helping together by prayer for us. So much then at this point for his first point. Now he wants to excite us to praise, to stir us up to praise, because praise should always follow answered prayer. To forget to praise God is to refuse to benefit ourselves, for prayer, praise, like prayer, is exceedingly useful to the spiritual man. It's a high and healthful exercise, the most heavenly of Christian duties. And so tongue-tied Christians are a sad dishonour to the church. Some whom the devil has gagged, the loudest music they ever make is when they're champing the bit of their silence. No, says Spurgeon, we ought to be praising God. Praise here has a special commendation. The praise of one Christian is accepted before God like a grain of incense, but the praise of many is like a censer full of frankincense smoking up before the Lord. Combined praise is an anticipation of heaven, for in that general assembly they all together with one heart and voice praise the Lord. And so he asks, how many burdens has it removed? I am sure when I hear the shout of praise in this house it warms my heart. It is at times a little too slow for my taste, and I must urge you to quicken your pace that the rolling waves of majestic praise may display their full force. Yet with all drawbacks, to my heart there is no music like yours. My Dutch friends praise the Lord so very slowly that one might very well go to sleep, lulled by their lengthened strains. Now Spurgeon's just come back from the Netherlands, as becomes clear uh, uh, later on in his his sermon. Uh, His point is, and he Uh, apparently was in the habit sometimes of exhorting the congregation at the tabernacle, which it must be remembered was a very large body of people. And the larger a body is, the slower it tends to sing, especially if it's untrained singers. And Spurgeon would, would exhort people to see if they couldn't overcome the devil and just keep up with one another as they were singing the praise of God. So that's, that's his point, that praise ought to sound like praise. We have a prayer meeting, he says. Maybe we should have a praise meeting once a week. A prayer meeting every Monday and a prayer meeting every Saturday and a prayer meeting every morning. That's more than many of us might stomach. But why not a praise meeting? Surely seasons should be set apart for services made up of praise from beginning to end. Let us try the plan at once. And as united prayer should be offered specially for ministers, so united praise should often take the same aspect. A spirit of thankfulness for the gifts that God has given, the the blessing that Christ has bestowed upon the church. He says, we ought to praise God for good ministers that they live, for when they die, much of their work dies with them. In nine cases out of ten, if not in ninety-nine out of every hundred, the prosperity of a church rests on the minister's life. God ordains it to humble us, and so we should be grateful if their life is spared. Then there should be great gratitude for preserved character, that a minister is kept from falling into sin. Then there should be uh, praise that the minister is well supplied with goodly matter, that is, that he's able to keep bringing out of his treasury things both new and old to feed his people, and that should be hearty thanksgiving. 
And if he be kept sound, if he go not aside to philosophy on the one hand, nor to narrowness of doctrine on the other, there should be thanksgiving there. If he continues to preach the gospel, to hold forth the whole counsel of God, to speak the truth in every place where it's properly found, then this is a cause for thanksgiving. The minister of God is alive and at work. God has preserved his character. God has given him something to say, and God holds him fast to the truth as it is in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, if that's what God has done in the congregations of which we're a part, we ought to be praising God that he's given such under-shepherds to care for his flock. So be thankful for your ministers, says Spurgeon again, for if you were placed where some believers are, you would cry out to your God, Lord, send us back your prophets. Send us a famine of bread or a famine of water, but send us not a famine of the word of God. And so he asks them to uh, join with him in giving thanks, praising God for the help that was given to him in this uh, two weeks, this fortnight's work there in, in the Netherlands. And he talks about Uh, some of the work that he's done. He's talked about the places where he's preached and the blessings that he's received. There may be, he says, mingled with this some touch of egotism. The Lord knows whether it be so or not, but I am not conscious of it. That's a quite striking thing, I think, to say. It would be hard, wouldn't it, to, to think of preaching week after week, day after day, to thousands upon thousands of people, to be received by royalty, to be perhaps applauded by every denomination, to know that God was using you to uh, save multitudes of souls, and then to be able to say, I am not conscious of any egotism in praising God for these blessings. Well, the Lord, the Lord knew his heart and uh, perhaps the Lord knew how to how to deal with his servant. No doubt the Lord knew how to deal with his servant. I, I just find it striking, quite stunning, that uh, he's conscious of the possibility of pride, but not conscious that there's any of that in him as he so speaks. And I think that's a mark of the man. And then finally, the joyful claims that the apostle gives in the 12th verse as a reason why there should be prayer and praise. Our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we've had our conversation in the world and more abundantly toward you. And so, says Spurgeon, after all, a man's comfort must come next to the finished salvation of God from the testimony of his own conscience, and to a minister what a testimony it is that he has preached the gospel in simplicity, to which there are two senses. First, preached it not with double-mindedness, saying one thing and meaning another. Preached it not as watermen row, looking one way and pulling another, but preached it meaning what he said, having a single heart, desiring God's salvation, God's glory and the salvation of men. And what a blessing to have preached it simply, that is to say, without hard words, without polished phrases, never studying elocutionary graces, never straining after oratorical embellishments. And I do wonder if the phrase oratorical embellishments was said with a sly smile. So, says Spurgeon, this is the the minister's piece to be able to say, I preached it plainly and I preached it clearly. I preached it truthfully and sincerely, and I preached it without 
complication. If a minister can say that, then whatever else may be his sins and failings, he can pillow his head and commit himself to God, not in the sense, I have done this work and therefore uh, you ought to receive me, but Lord, I've done what you called me to do. The apostle says also that he preached it with sincerity, meaning it, feeling it, preaching it so that none could accuse him of being false. The Greek word has something in it of sunlight, and he is the true minister of God who preaches what he would wish to have hung up in the sunlight or who has the sunlight shining right through him. So this is this is Spurgeon's aim. This is his appetite. He's trying to pursue for himself this apostolic model and holding it up as the example for others also. It's 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 a tragedy he says what fleshly wisdom will do and now he's picking up the language of his text what a lesson he says i've learned during the last fortnight which i would that england would learn three schools of theological error in the netherlands each one leaping over the back of its fellow some of them holding that all the facts of scripture are only myths others of them saying there are some good things in the bible though a great many mistakes and others flinging the whole bible away altogether as to its inspiration Ah, says Spurgeon, that the church has gone to such a length as that, the old Dutch Reformed Church, the very mirror of Calvinism, standing fast and firm in its creeds to all the doctrines we love, and yet gone astray to latitudinarian and licentious liberty. And so, says Spurgeon, we need to watch out for these things. We need to make sure that it is heavenly and not fleshly wisdom. We should decry fleshly wisdom. Some of you sometimes hear a minister, he says, you like to hear him put things pretty well and you find fault unless you show some degree of talent. I wonder whether that is not a sin, a sort of a critical spirit. Does the man speak well? Does he look well? Does he sound well? Not to dismiss the the proper powers of pulpit oratory, but not to applaud a mere fleshly excellence. And now I lay my claim again, he says, as my conscience bears me witness. I lay my claim to this boasting of our apostle. Now again, perhaps we're in a society where how dare he say that? How dare someone stand up and say that, that I can stand where the apostle stood? I have preached God's gospel in simplicity. I do not know how I can preach it more simply, nor can I more honestly declare it. I've preached it sincerely. The searcher of all hearts knows that and I've not preached it with fleshly wisdom and that for one excellent reason, that I have not any and have been compelled to keep to the simple testimony of the Lord. But if I've done aught, it has been done by the grace of God. If any success has been achieved, it has been grace that has done it all. Now, you might say the same thing about the apostle. How dare any man speak these things? But the point is, and I think this is what Spurgeon is trying to emphasize, this is precisely what a faithful minister ought to be able to say. I have preached God's gospel in simplicity. That's not boasting. That's not vain self-congratulation. That's the testimony of a faithful steward. You, we have warned, he says. We've entreated you. We've exhorted you. We've pleaded with you. We've wept over you. We've prayed for you. To some of you, we have been a spiritual parent in Christ. To many of you as a nursing father. To many of you as a teacher and an edifier, a builder up in the gospel. 
and we hope to all of you a sincere friend in Christ Jesus. And therefore, says Spurgeon, I claim your prayers. May I ask you, if you are a Christian, do you respond to the claim to your prayers and praise that God's faithful ministers have upon you? Not because they think they're better than anybody else, not because they think they're more important than anybody else, but because they're God's gift in the truest sense to serve for your good and for his glory. So says Spurgeon, pray for all your ministers that God may make them mighty. The church wants still more of the loud voice of God to wake it from its sleep. So ask God to bless all his sent servants. Plead with him with divine energy that so his kingdom may come and his will may be done on earth as it is in heaven. Oh, he says in closing that you all believed in Jesus for until you do, you cannot pray nor praise. Oh, that you all believed in Jesus. Remember, this is the only way of salvation. Trust Jesus, for he that believes on him is not condemned, but he that believes not is condemned already because he believes not on the Son of God. Trust Jesus and you shall be saved. May Christ accept you now for his own love's sake. How does that make us feel? I hope that if we are ministers of the gospel, it humbles us, it stirs us, it reminds us of the dignity of the calling which God has given to us and perhaps stops us being so shy of asking God's people to pray for us in accordance with our responsibilities, duties and opportunities. The very real demands that are placed upon us, the very real needs that we have, the very real risks that we run. And I hope that if we are ministered to by God's servants, those who serve us because they're serving him, that it will put us truly to praying that God would uphold, employ, use, bless and accomplish glorious things for his name in us and in many others by the ministers whom he's given to his church and that there may be a proper thankfulness for the gifts that have come from heaven from the God who saves wretches and sends them out to work on his behalf in order that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of men, known and seen to be heavenly realities rather than the feeble efforts of the feeble instruments that God uses to glorify his own name. So pray, pray and praise. Pray for your ministers, praise God for the gifts he gives and grant, pray that God would grant yet more faithful workers who might be able to stand humbly but sincerely and declare that they have done the work that was committed to their hands. I hope that that's a help to you. It's certainly been a instructive for me. And I trust, God willing, that next week you'll join us once again. Our sermons through those days are 514 to 520. And our chosen text, our chosen sermon, rather, our featured sermon, is going to be 518, The Bridgeless Gulf. May God bless us until we have an opportunity to gather again in this way. May God bless us and use us for his glory. May we pray and praise while we have the opportunity. You have been listening to From the Heart of Spurgeon with me, 
Jeremy Walker. If you like the podcast, please subscribe or write a review on your favourite podcast app.